Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 388 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Brian Evanson. He's the author of such novels as The Warren, Immobility, and Last Days, and short story collections such as A Collapse of Horses and Wind Eye. He also writes books under the name B.K. Evanson, including the media tie-in novels Aliens No Exit and Dead Space Martyr. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new short story collection, Song for the Unraveling of the World. We'll also be talking about how he quit teaching at Brigham Young University in 1995 when they told him that he had to stop writing horror. And now here's our interview with Brian Evanson. All right, so we're here with Brian Evanson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, and so your new book is a short story collection called Song for the Unraveling of the World. So right. how would you say this book is similar to or different from your previous collections? Well, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of my que- uh, collections are kind of on a boundary between literature and genre. And that's the case in, in this book as well. But I think it kind of moves even more into genre in some ways. So there's a lot of stories that have a science fictional element. There's a lot of stories with a horror element to them. And, and you know, kind of all together, they, they're they still literary stories, but they, they I try to take the best of genre and the best of literature. And so my previous collections, as I've said, is, have done that as well. But I just think this is a little more pointed in that direction. Yeah, this is the first book of yours I'd read. And I was actually surprised how many of the stories were just flat out science fiction stories with spaceships and robots and aliens and stuff. Yeah. Have, you, um, have you written many stories like that in the past? or um, You know, there there are pieces here and there i have like a story called the dust that mcsweeney's did as as a one of their genre issues and um but this is the first time i this is the most uh number of stories the, the greatest number of stories that are kind of science fiction theme that i've had kind of in one place yeah i mean what is your history as a science fiction fan did you grow up reading science fiction or i did yeah i mean when i was a kid all i was reading was science fiction and and then i think uh when i was 14 or so my my um dad um brought home uh, a, a book of Kafka's collected stories and um, read one with me and kind of turned me on to that. And that kind of took me in a very different direction. Um, but, but, and then I finally came back to science fiction maybe five or 10 years ago and realized that it was, you know, very rich, very interesting things going on. And, 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 you know, I felt found, found that uh, a lot of things that were going on thematically with science fiction were things that I were, I was really interested in. So, so before you took the little Kafka detour, what kind of stuff had you been reading? Um, so it was Gene Wolfe was huge for me when I was like 12 to 14, um, even though I don't think I really understood what he was <laughs> doing at the time. Um, and, you know, going back, he's like also one of the ones I've returned to. Uh, the thing that started me back into science fiction is I had a student who was reading Gene Wolfe and had, had he was reading the fifth head of cerberus which i'd never read that was one of the books i hadn't read and he, he uh you know suggested i read it so i did and that just started me off again took me back to the book of the, the new sun and stuff like that uh michael moorcock was someone who I was reading a lot of kind of new wave science fiction writers um samuel delaney a little bit uh but then also people like andre norton um who else? Uh, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, just a little bit. Um, you know, people like that. Yeah, I mean, Book of the New Sun is one of my favorite books. I've read that five times, and yeah, I couldn't me say too. I could even really tell you what it's about. So, <laughs> I... yeah, it's it's. I I read it. I've been reading it every couple of years, just reading the whole thing over again. And I I probably read it about five times too at this point. I just I really love it, and I think it's just amazing in terms of some of the things he does in that book. Yeah, absolutely. So so I heard you say that you're you sort of first experimented with writing because your mom w- wanted to uh yeah a science fiction sort of contest could you talk about that yeah yeah my mom when i was i guess i would have been about 12 um my mom um there was a we, we, i grew up mormon i'm an excommunicated mormon now and but at the time we were kind of living in utah and there was a call for an anthology that was going to be called latter-day saint science fiction um Latter-day Saints being Mormon. So kind of an anthology of all science fiction stories, all written about Mormonism or by Mormons. And my mom got interested in that. She was an architect, um, but uh, I think really uh, she'd, she'd done an English degree and, and was always interested in reading and writing and, and decided she'd write a story um, for that. And to kind of give herself time to write a story, she uh, set the five of us up. I was the oldest of five kids doing various things. And so like the younger kids would be doing art and 
things like that or you know some kind of project and with me she's like oh you're old enough you should just write and so i kind of took that to heart and started writing and just immediately found that i had a connection to it even though i don't think the work was you know (laughs) all that interesting what i was doing but um and so that that kind of was the start for me and the start of thinking of it seriously and she got that story accepted It, it was published um i think that's the only story she published um, but that also, like watching my mom do that, I think made me realize it was a, it was possible. So, were your parents into science fiction, or was that just kind of a random thing she happened to come across? Um, they were definitely into science fiction, but they, my parents both read really widely, and so they they read science fiction, but read realism and read all sorts of things. I mean, they weren't super adventurous, I think, in terms of some of the things they read, but but you know, they still um, would read kind of just very different sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that my, my, my dad introduced me to Kafka, my mom introduced me to Poe, um, kind of early on was, you know, pretty helpful to me. But they also, yeah, uh, read a lot of science fiction. So do you think that you probably would have gravitated toward writing anyway, or was that one of those sort of pivot points where your life could have taken a completely different direction? You know, in, in retrospect, it looks like a pivot point. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's so easy to decide where the pivot points are kind of after they happen. Um, but, but I, you know, I don't know if that's partly just constructed after the fact. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it was an important moment for me. Uh, everybody else in my family is in the sciences pretty much. All my brothers and sisters are either in the soft or hard sciences. And so I'm kind of this outlier in terms of what I, I do. Um, and you know, I was, I was kind of, I thought when I went to college that I was going to, um, uh, study, uh, microbiology. And uh, just very quickly, I, I ended up working with a Welsh poet named Leslie Norris, who was uh, at Brigham Young University, which is where I went to school. And he turned me on to writing. He kind of made it me realize it was possible. He was incredibly well read, so he could point me to people that I was interested in. Um, so he he got me reading people like J.G. Ballard, who who you know kind of has a connection to science fiction as well, obviously. And a lot of people that were kind of in a slippery space between literature and genre. And that just started to make me feel like there was a spot for me in writing and um, just kept me going. Mm-hmm. So the the six stories in this book that I sort of identified as being the really core science fiction stories, um, mm-hmm. you know, usually um, people I talk to, their their science fiction short stories would have been published in Lightspeed or Asimov's or Clark's World or something like that. And these right. stories were all published in things that I'm less familiar with. I mean, conjunctions I've heard of, but the the other ones, right. are, I'm, I'm not. Could, could you talk about why you, um, sort of the pros and cons of submitting to the magazines or yeah. anthologies you did versus other ones, science fiction? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think my my kind of understanding of genre and how genre works has really changed over time. So, you know, originally, I think back in the early 2000s, I, I, I just really didn't think of myself as a science fiction writer or a genre writer at all. And then I was um, in 2003, I had a book called The Wavering Knife. And, and suddenly I got a note saying that it was up for a, uh, a World Fantasy Award. And uh, um, that was really surprising to me because I just hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, and, and then I got a, a note a few days later letting me know I'd won the award. And that kind of for me was the start of, of thinking, all right, uh, maybe I just don't understand what is going on in genre. And so I read the other people who were up for that award and started to kind of from there move to other people, other sorts of writers. And, you know, quickly I realized that, that, you know, there's, there's as much kind of interesting stuff going on on the genre side of the literary genre divide as there is on the literary side. And there's good and bad work on both sides. And I was just not really being pointed, I think, to, to stuff that, that, you know, would really inspire me. Even though like, you know, when I've been young, I'd read Gene Wolfe and, you know, but, but I don't think I realized at the time just how good he was. And so that was kind of the start of it for me, just kind of an acknowledgement of, of connection to genre. And then Conjunctions Magazine um, did this issue uh, where uh, Brad Morrow, who runs the magazine, brought Peter Straubin to co-edit an issue, which he called the New Wave Fabulists. And the idea of that issue was to take writers who were thought of as genre writers and publish them in this kind of high literary context so that you just think about them in a different way or notice different things about them. And that, for me, too, kind of both pointed me to a lot of writers that I really became interested in, um, like Kelly Link and, and uh, you know, a number, number of other people. And uh, 
and then also just made me realize that that what I'd seen as kind of this distinct gulf was was more a line that you could kind of hop back and forth across. And so so I started just publishing stuff. And and in fact, one of the things about this book that's strange is some stories were published in literary magazines and then um, were reprinted in, in you know, best of genre publications. Um, and and there, there is a kind of active confusion. Um, I, I published in Nightmare magazine. Um, but I haven't published in Lightspeed. Um, I, I think at some point I'll, I'll um, send to them again. Um, but it's it's just yeah, I, I just have various places. I don't I don't know why I, most of the stories were published in literary magazines. Not all of them were obviously, but but a lot were. Well, yeah. So so I mean, like a magazine like Plinth or Lumina, do they publish yeah. much? Um, science fiction in terms of aliens <laughs> and spaceships and things like that? No, 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 they don't. I mean, in something like that, that's like an extre- extremely small magazine, um, uh, you know, and, and I think in the case of Plinth, it's online. And that was something where, you know, I get a lot of people writing to ask for stuff, and, and, and every once in a while, if they ask me to do something somewhat weird, I'll, I'll do it. I just don't have all that many hours of it in the day, but I'm, I'm really a sucker for, like, a project that just seems different or weird. And so the plinth, uh, uh, story, um, they just, I can't even remember what it was, but something about the way the editor approached me made me think it was, it was worth doing. And then, you know, luckily it's, I always think about my magazine publications as the story can kind of have a life later, uh, in a book. So it's, it's somewhere where I can kind of play around and try things and maybe expose myself to an audience that just wasn't aware of me before. Well, for, for this story, for example, Lord of the Vats is very clearly a sort of space yeah. opera meets Lovecraft um, yeah. mashup. And I, was like, I, I thought, oh, that's interesting. But then I saw it, it appeared in an, in an anthology of stories that were all kind of supposed to be that. Or Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's um, a bunch of the genre publications were in anthologies that I got solicited for. That was one of them. And, um, you know, a few others were like that as well. And, and so um, a lot of my genre publication has been in, in that area. Um, I have a new story that's coming out in Nightmare Magazine in a few weeks, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and other than that, I, I think that uh, the publication or two that I have before the end of the year are all in more magazines that are thought of as more literary. Mm. I mean, do you get pushback ever from people saying that you're there's too much, um, you know, weirdness in your stories or in workshops or anything? Um, you know, it's been so long since I've, <laughs> I, I mean, I teach workshops and I kind of try to make a, an atmosphere in the workshop that allows for, for the stories to develop in their own way and be unique. And, you know, originally I got a lot of pushback about it. Um, when I was, when I was a young writer, um, people really wanted me to just not do that. They wanted me to, to write realistic stories. I used to have this professor at BYU who would tell me, um, He'd say, you know, this is all very nice and stuff, but maybe you could just, you know, imagine your best friend and imagine him getting a girl pregnant and then write that story. That's what really matters. And I, I just, I didn't ever see the point of that, you know? Um, and so, so I, I just kept on kind of doing, stubbornly doing what I, I was, was interested in, which is kind of, you know, something with a fantastical element that was, you know, speculative to some degree. And, and, uh, the first review I got from a major press for my first book, a book called Altman's Tongue, was from the Los Angeles Times, and it essentially said, you know, this is there's some talent in this book, and this will be a good writer once he stops doing all this dark stuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, at this point, I think what happened is I just kept on doing it for like a couple of decades, and eventually people were like, oh yeah, he's the guy who does that, and then they they got used to it. They kind of just got acclimated to me. And we're okay with it. But yeah, occasionally I still have, especially with literary um, reviews of reviews of my book by people who think of themselves as literary, um, they'll say things like, you know, this isn't really a literary book or, you know, this is this would be a much better writer if he would just not be so interested in genre. But I also think that distinction is so artificial. And, you know, it, it's if you go back to the early 20th century and look at how people published books, there would be a, a huge mix of genres in the same book of stories. It would be kind of like a, you know, uh, uh, just a, an anthology of different sorts of things going on. So you could have a ghost story next to a realistic story next to something that was a little bit weirder and, and back and forth like that. And for, for me, that's, you know, what I'm interested in as a reader is, is those variations. 
And I think now too, it's like television and movies have just really changed how we, how younger people anyway, think about that stuff. Cause you can go, you know, you can, you can watch a Disney movie one day and then you can go see a, a, a thriller the next day, or you can, you know, even in the course of an evening, go through like five or six different genres. And, uh, if you're watching TV and, and so I, I just think that those distinctions that people saw as really important, uh, earlier in, uh, you know, in the, in the late 20th century and earlier 20th, uh, mid 20th century are just no longer all that relevant. I mean, when you say that you don't see the point of the guy gets his girlfriend pregnant sort of stories, I mean, you, you've written about like um, Raymond Carver and stuff like that. Do you see him as yeah, yeah. in that mode? Or? You know, I don't see him in that mode exactly. I mean, I, I don't see the point of me writing them, I guess, is, is what I'd say more than anything else. And I think that for me, the most interesting Carver stories are the ones that are weirdest. Like there's a story called Neighbors, which is about uh, a couple who are taking care of a neighbor's apartment and then they, they start to have a really strange relationship with the apartment. Um, or there's, there's one called tell the women we're going, which, which reads to me like a kind of like sublimated horror story. And, and there are those sorts of things. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's not important to talk about or write about relationships, but I also think that like, if someone comes to you in your office with a story, which I think the story at the time was, um, about a kind of devastated world and people trying to move through it, then, then probably you shouldn't say to them, you should actually be writing this other sort of thing that has nothing to do with what you just showed me. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, yeah. when I was, you know, I went through a phase of reading, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and yeah. uh, all those authors. And I always found that they would have like one fantasy weird kind of story, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, with Fitzgerald, it was the diamond as big as the Ritz. And I always liked that story, oh, sure. you yes. know, 10 yeah, times more too. than all their other stories. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, and I think that, yeah, there, there is often this moment where these different writers kind of, who we think of as realistic kind of play around with the genre and some do it very well in, in interesting ways. And I'm not quite sure what it is about, you know, some people just do that, like they do it once or twice and then that's enough for them. Um, whereas other people like me, I mean, I really feel like for, for me, the most interesting things happening right now, um, are kind of in that blurry space between genre and literature. And, you know, and if you have a relationship story, I mean, it's, you know, it, it can still be in that space and kind of just, just be all the more interesting because of the kind of complications. I also sort of feel like every nonfiction book you read and every documentary you watch and every news broadcast you watch is all going to be about our world. So when you go to yeah. fiction, could you get a little more variety? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So, <laughs> I mean, there is a kind of snobbery to just saying like, all I want to read is, is, you know, literary fiction. And, you know, I, I know people who are like, I only watch art films and that's, that's great, but it's also, you know, you could watch, I, I, I don't, I don't think it should be an either or. I think it can be a both and, you know, you could kind of enjoy things. And one thing I've found really welcoming about the genre community is that people that I know in that community just read a lot. And they read really widely, which reminds me of my parents when I was growing up. And so, so if I go into a genre setting and I'm talking to someone, they'll know a lot about different science fiction writers. Um, but they'll also know, you know, they'll, they'll know kind of, uh, literary classics and they'll have some idea of contemporary fiction, even if it's not complete. They at least have thought about it a little bit. If I go into the, the, a, a literary setting, um, it's, I find it much more limited in terms of what people are likely to know. And it's not that they're not smart people there, but I think there is sometimes a, a, a resistance to kind of moving outside of boundaries that seem safe. Right. And so then you also almost went in the complete opposite direction to write these, um, aliens and dead space tie-in novels. How did that come about? Yeah. Um, I, uh, the, uh, there was an editor at Dark Horse who, uh, was interested in, in a, a book of mine that, um, she ended up leaving the, the press and, and, um, starting a, her own press and publishing it there, uh, novel called Last Days. Um, and she, uh, wrote to me kind of out of the blue and said, you know, I have an idea for you. Um, I want you to think about it before you say no. And she said, you know, I want you to write an aliens or a predators novel. And at the time I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know. That just doesn't. <laughs> and she said, all right, just do this. Write a one page, um, uh, description of the kind of novel you would write. And then, and then we'll go from there. And if you don't want to do it, it's no problem. Just do that for me. 
And so I, I ended up starting to write a description. And by the time I was done writing the description, it was about 20 pages long. And I just realized, oh, I could do this in a way that would be, um, you know, uh, interesting to me that it could kind of pick up on some kind of ideas and themes of that I, I have in my other work and also could kind of be fun in a, in a whole different way. And so, so that was the start. Um, we published that under the name BK Evanson. And that's, and anything I do that's kind of working with someone else's property or that's co-writing a book with someone else. You know, I did a book with Rob Zombie. I did a book with James DeMonaco. Um, I use a BK Evanson for that. And those tend to be a little more genre-y. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, especially with this latest book, Song for the Unraveling of the World, that, that boundary between, you know, what I do as Brian Evanson and what I do as BK Evanson is getting more and more blurred. So for writing an Aliens novel, did you just watch Aliens for research and you're good? Or do you have to delve into the Aliens mythology? Uh, you, you do have to. I mean, so the, the thing that she sent me is um, the Bible. Um, which is all the things that you can and can't do. And she said, I'm supposed to send you one that's just specific to authors, but I'm going to send you the one that's for the editors too, because it's a little bigger and it'll just make everything you know, clear. And it, it would have very specific things in it. I mean, they'd say things like aliens don't have feelings. You can't have, you know, any books from the perspective of the alien, at least at the time. And, or, you know, they, there were rules about Ripley. You weren't allowed to use Ripley because, um, there was just too much out there that had already done that. Um, and so, so I had this kind of set of constraints. Um, I had an idea for things and I kind of had presented her, the idea with her, uh, to her. And then, um, you know, I, and I, I did rewatch the movies, which I, I, I teach a class at CalArts here called The Monstrous and the Terrible, which is a class on horror fiction and film. And so I, I'm kind of, I, I always show Alien in that because I think it's a, a kind of amazing, um, kind of haunted, haunted house in space movie. Um, so, but I rewatched the movies, thought about it a little bit, kind of had an idea, uh, had, had this thing that I presented her and then just kind of set forward and wrote it. And then one of the things that I did to kind of make it fun for me was, um, that book includes, uh, a lot of the names are variations of names of my friends. And I wrote to a bunch of people, including Kelly Link, and just said, look, I'm, I'm writing this novel and, um, uh, I want to include you in it in some way. But the deal is, is that anyone who's in it is going to meet a hideous, awful death. Mm -hmm. And, and they were totally into it and very excited about, you know, comparing, you know, who had the worst death. Um, so, so I, I did that to kind of keep myself sane. I, I write those novels a little bit faster than I write my, um, other novels, the Brian Evanson novels. And I think it's partly I write them faster just because I already have that outline that I'm working on. And most of my other work, I don't outline in the same way. Um, so yeah. I mean, in our last, in our last episode or an episode or two ago, we were talking about how, you know, there's alien and aliens. And then there's been a whole string of movies that have not really connected with audiences or critics after that. And I was just yeah. curious if you. As a horror expert, could you diagnose <laughs> what's ailing the Alien franchise? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a good question. I, 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 I think those later movies are okay, but I also don't find them incredibly moving. I just, I think it's partly that. So for for me, the great one is Alien. I think that Alien works very, very well. Um, I think it has, you know, a contained premise. Uh, I think Ridley Scott did a great job in terms of how he approached it. Um, Aliens Two has some real strengths. Um, um, I think Aliens 3 could have been an amazing, amazing movie, but it's like, it, it almost feels like it's two different movies that have been smashed together. And Aliens 4 is, is super wacky, but I, I have a soft spot for it in terms of how it, you know, develops and works. And then I, I just think that, that the, you know, the later Alien stuff, um, I don't know. I mean, it just, it just, uh, I mean, maybe it feels like it's going through the motions a little bit, or they're they're very beautiful in terms of how they're shot, but there's just there's not it just doesn't offer the same sort of thing. Um, I don't know. I, now I've just I've just shown you that I'm not really a horror expert. <laughs> I can't answer the question. Um, but it's also like I mean, there's so much going on in terms of like like books kind of in that world and stuff, and there are some very good books. Uh, Jim Woodring has an amazing. Uh, novel that he wrote um, in, in, in the Alien um, universe, and there's a couple of good comics and things. And I think it may be just there's a certain amount of exhaustion 
and there wasn't enough that was kind of transformative or new about um, those those other you know the late aliens movies that that really made it made them work or made people connect to them. Yeah. How about Dead Space? Did you play Dead Space, or how did that happen? Yeah, I'd, I'd played Dead Space before. So after the Aliens book happened, um, I think what happened is people realized, oh, he he would do this stuff. <laughs> so, uh, and and you know when I did the Dead Space, uh, when I did the Aliens book, um, you know I made the choice to do the Aliens one, and and um, she asked me uh, if I could recommend anybody for Predator. And I knew that my friend Jeff Vandermeer um, had just kind of left his job and was freelancing, so I suggested him for it. So he ended up writing the Predator uh, novel that came out about that time too. Um, and then so, so I just think once people realize that you're kind of you, you're willing to do this and that you you're relatively decent at it, um, you, you start to be searched out in some ways, or you know, just word of mouth kind of works that way. Um, so Eric Robb, who was an editor at, at Tor, um, had seen the Aliens novel and he got in touch and just was interested in the idea of me doing Dead Space. And, uh, uh, I'd played the game. Um, I'd played the first one and really liked it. It's like, you know, there's something about it's kind of, you know, it's like being in a dirty, um, demented dentist's office or something. Mm-hmm. It's just really twisted and, 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 and quite scary, I think. Um, so I was into the game and, and I thought the sensibility of the game fits my sensibility. Cause I feel like even when I'm writing science fiction, it's like there's a strong kind of mood horror element to it. Um, and so, so I did the same thing where I wrote a proposal, sent it to them. And, and in this case, because it's kind of connected to an active property that's, that's, you know, at the time they were still making Dead Space games, I think Dead Space 2 had just come out. Um, they have to show it to that whole team, the team of writers there. And, and, uh, um, and I had done things with, with my proposal where I had suggested changing a major piece of lore, um, in Dead Space, having to do with Michael Altman, this kind of, uh, central character who's always talked about in that first game and the second game. And, and I thought they'll never go for this. They're just not going to, you know, go for it. And they were into the idea. They were super cool with it. And they were like, yeah, we can see how this would actually, work and how we can kind of reveal in the games the same thing and and uh you know and then we just started writing um the the aliens book i mean my editor and i had done a lot of work together on it but it's like uh there hadn't been kind of oversight like that fox owns the aliens properties but um they they just um they were given a chance to respond to the book and never even looked at as far as i can tell um, and then this one, it was much more active. Chuck Beaver, who's an amazing, um, story writer for video games, um, still working in the industry, um, was, was very active in terms of kind of responding to the book and talking about it, gave me good notes. So do you play a lot of video games or was Dead Space something that kind of jumped out at you? you played it? <laughs> um, I used to play a lot of video games and, and, um, you know, I've kind of, uh, played less as time's gone on. I have a six year old. And, and so there's just not enough hours in the day for me to play video games and also do my writing and, and have a family life, um, and also take, be able to sleep. And I think just when I was younger, I just don't think I slept as much. And I also, you know, my, I, I have two kids from an earlier marriage and they're a little older and it's a little different. Um, I guess the last game I played was Inside, um, which I really loved. And, um, but I just was doing, um, some, some world design work with, uh, for a VR game called The Under Presents, uh, which is coming out in November from Oculus. And so I, I try to stay kind of engaged in that world. Um, and, and I, I do play, you know, little phone games and things like that, but, but, and I have a console, but, but I, I very rarely find time to kind of sit down and play something through. Yeah, you know, I have to, you know, for this podcast, obviously, I listen to lots of interviews and things with authors before I interview them. And so I end up playing a lot of video games with the sound off while I'm, uh, uh-huh. while I'm listening to stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, do you have favorites that you played recently? Or? Uh, the I'm games always that, looking for. Well, yeah. you know, I can only play games where the sound obviously isn't a major factor in the game. Um, so, I mean, the games I play the most are Cuphead and Doom 2016. Um, oh, yeah. I recently, I just mm-hmm. beat River City Girls. And okay. I was really into this. There's this really, you would actually probably like it. There was this game called Control where it's sort of oh. um, like, it's like the X-Files um, meets Lovecraft or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
you're in this sort of um, FBI building and it's all getting all weird and warped and everything. But that one, oh, that it, awesome. it's so it's such a moody game that I feel like I have to play that one with the sound. So I uh -huh. not, yeah. I haven't played it as much because I uh, you know I can't work while I'm playing that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm always looking for things in the cage. When people recommend stuff, I I, I play them. Cuphead, I've heard great things about. So just in terms of what it looks like and things. Yeah, it's just brutally hard. So just watch out for that. Okay, good to know. <laughs> so the other thing I really wanted to talk to you about, you know, what I always heard about you was this thing about how you had quit BYU because they wanted yeah. you to stop writing horror. So just mm -hmm. for people who haven't heard that story, could we just cover that quickly? Like, you're, sure. So you're like yeah. a, you're like a 28 year old PhD yeah. grad. This is your first job, I think, right, or first okay. academic job. Yeah. So so I I uh, got a job at Brigham Young University, kind of right out of grad school. Um, and between getting the job and and uh, coming out, I had a book accepted. Um, and you know, in when I was interviewing with them, they I was kind of nervous about it because I know it's a, a Mormon school, religious school, and I wasn't sure that they'd really like what I do, which is always, whether it's literary or, or more genre, it's, it's fairly dark. And so I talked about with, that with them in the interview, and they said, well, is there sex in it? And I said, well, not not a lot of sex. And they're like, well, you should be okay then. Um, there was this weird sta double standard with that. Um, and then I came out to BYU. Um, when I was at BYU, the book came out, I think, about a year and a half after I'd been there, a year after I'd been there. And um, a student, anonymous student who was not in any of my classes, was in someone else's class, read the book, decided it was an inappropriate book for someone teaching at a Mormon university to, to write, and then ended up writing to Mormon general authorities who are the, the people kind of at the head, the upper level of the church. And so they wrote back to my department chair, and he suddenly asked me, he gave me a copy of the anonymous letter and asked me to write um, a response to it. Um, and, you know, I did. I took that seriously and, and tried to explain what I was doing and, and, and why I thought it was important and why I intended to continue doing it. And, and gave it to him thinking it would be shown to the people who'd ask, you know, who'd come calling about that, the general authorities. Um, didn't hear anything. Didn't hear anything for a while. And then finally, um, you know, months later, I approached him and he said, Oh yeah, I sent it up to them and, and let me show you what I sent with it. And he'd sent with it a letter that said that I understood that writing the book was inappropriate and that further publications uh, like it would uh, bring repercussions. And that was not what I understood. I understood that I was going to defend a book that I believed in. And and uh, so suddenly I thought, wait a minute, this means that uh, you're saying that if, if I do this again, that you're going to fire me. And so... The next six months or so was a kind of long process of trying to get them to give me a straight answer about that. And in the end, I mean, it finally became clear that, that, you know, not only was I likely to get fired, uh, if I stayed there, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, even more complicated because at the time I was still Mormon and I was likely to eventually lose my membership in the church. And this, you know, was a tough moment and tough decision for me to know what to do with that because I had, uh, two young kids and a young family. We just moved to Utah. Um, and it was actually, I was doing a, eventually all this information kind of came out and was public. And, um, once it was, I did a couple of magazine interviews. And in one of the magazine interviews, I was, uh, the photographer who was taking pictures of me actually knew about a job in Oklahoma. And suggested that I apply for it, even though the deadline was gone. And I got that job and ended up leaving. Um, but that was kind of the start of the collapse of my marriage, um, since my wife stayed Mormon and, and I drifted away from it. And also, um, you know, it was, it was just, you know, everything kind of changed for me at that moment. But also on, on the plus side, I mean, it made me realize that people cared about what I did, even if they cared about it by just hating it. So, uh, you know, for for a writer, I think it's a real gift to feel like people are listening to you. So was this just sort of like a weird confluence of events that caused this to happen? Or have there been other people who have been in a similar situation at BYU, like telling them they can't write horror? Or... There have been other 
there had been academics um, at BYU who'd had that happen. There were two people kind of shortly before me who had had it happen because of their stances on abortion. And their stance on abortion had been actually super, you know, not very liberal in a way. It, they, they, they had said that they were personally anti-abortion, but they still, still supported people's right to choose. And, and that was enough to, uh, to, to kind of get them so that they want one, you know, one I think was, was excommunicated and, and both of them left eventually. Um, and, uh, so, so there'd been that. I think I was the first one and maybe the only one to have it happen because of my writing. I mean, could you sort of, I don't know how well you remember, but could you walk us through sort of your train of thought and your deconversion process? Like how does going from, you know, you have this negative experience with the school hierarchy and eventually you're like, I just don't believe in this religion anymore. Like what are the steps in between? Well, you know, it was a super long process for me. Um, and, and it was, you know, I was pretty involved in Mormonism for a number of years. My wife and I are trying to, she, she's also a former Mormon and, and we've been, um, talking about kind of writing a book on, on how you leave your faith system and still be sane, um, which we may or may not end up doing, but I hope we do at some point. Um, but, but basically what happened is, uh, you know, I, I grew up Mormon six generations back. My family is Mormon and I was pretty involved in it. You know, growing up, I was pretty relatively faithful. Um, and then, uh, this stuff started happening. And, and before I was at BYU, I had been at University of Washington and I'd been in a bishopric there. So I'd been one of three people kind of in charge of a, a congregation of about 700 people. So it wasn't like I was kind of on the fringe of Mormonism. And then this stuff happened at BYU and it's like, I had thought about all this stuff. I was very, you know, thoughtful in terms of how I wrote. I, I believed in what I stood by. And, and, and I thought initially, you know, I can just explain to them and it'll be okay. Um, partly because, you know, I come from a family of scientists who do really believe in rational ideas and, and, you know, rational argument is something that can convince people. But it quickly became clear that there was just, you know, they'd made a decision and they had no interest in listening to what I wanted to, to express. So even after that, I left. I went to Oklahoma State. I, I taught at, at Oklahoma State University for about four years. And at first I was involved in Mormonism and, and slowly I kind of became less and less involved. And, 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 uh, and eventually I kind of left, um, but not formally. And then what happened was that they kept on um, pressuring me just a little bit. You know, as long as I was still Mormon, they could kind of keep an eye on me in terms of what I was doing and and never tell me, you know, you can't do this, the, the Mormon church, but, would you know, some of my religious, local religious leaders would say, like, have you really thought about this? Are you sure this is the kind of thing you want to do? And kind of put this this pressure on that I think was meant to kind of be internalized by me. And, uh, eventually that just got to be just too much. And I, I finally told my wife, I, I, you know, I said, I, I just need to leave this. And so I, I went in and asked to be formally excommunicated. And at that point they, they tried to stop me from doing that. And I think partly cause they, you, you know, they lose control over you. Um, and then ultimately, you know, it took about a year, but it finally went through. And, and then, you know, I, I, at first I was very worried about that. I thought it would be. Um, really hard to take, um, you know, cause it, this is, this, this is a kind of uh, belief structure I've been part of all my life, but it was just in the end, it was just a huge relief. So when you're excommunicated, does that mean you can't go to heaven or anything like that? Like, are there theological? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm not a member of the church. They actually sent me a, a, a letter that said that my name had been stricken from the records of the church. And so it, it, the way that Mormonism works is it's got a, a very hierarchical heaven. So I, I definitely, and the idea is that those on the very highest level of the hierarchy can be there with their families and everyone else is, d- doesn't. And so, uh, so yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for people around me. And, and, uh, uh, you know, ultimately it's, uh, you know, I, I've kind of decided to suspend those questions for now. I feel like I feel very comfortable not being Mormon and I have no real desire to become anything else did anybody ever from your old community did they ever reach out to you and say that you had been treated unfairly or they felt bad or did they all sort of close ranks and have a group think kind of no there were a lot of people who privately uh, reached out to me about the stuff that had happened to byu and you know even i i, I have a, a a fairly 
sensible family. So even my grandparents who were fairly um, conservative, I mean, they just thought, oh, it's just been a big misunderstanding. They just didn't understand Brian and what he's really like. And so, so there were a lot of Mormons who were kind to me. There were a lot of Mormons who were supportive of me. There were a lot of Mormons who, who wrote letters for me, what was going on. And I don't feel hostile to, to, you know, the culture, um, necessarily, even though I, I'm glad to be, you know, out of the religion. So in, in this book that you're working on with your wife, like what, what would be sort of the, um, like the thumbnail advice you would give to someone about? Well, I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, I think that we're, uh, Part of it is just, you know, I, I think that there's different ways of leaving your faith. And, and a lot of people leave in a way, whatever the faith is, where it's like they've just, they've left, but they still kind of act like they're part of it and they still feel the burden of it. And so just trying to figure out ways in which you can kind of, um, you know, be yourself and take the things that were important to you about, about that, but, but also, um, you know, not have to take a lot of the baggage that's there. There's a lot of people who leave Mormonism and become ex-Mormons, and then they spend all their time talking about Mormonism. And, you know, the only real difference is that they drink now. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so, I, you know, I, I just think it's a question of trying to find a, a very, um, you know, a, your your own kind of direction and your own joy in some ways. And we left in very different ways. Kristen uh, Tracy, who's my wife, she's a young adult novelist, um, she just slowly drifted away and, and she, she kind of from early age just thought that everyone was pretending. How could they possibly believe this weird stuff? And I was kind of, you know, uh, more involved and more committed and, and my leaving was much more dramatic. Um, but you know, we've both gotten to a place where we feel like, you know, we were ethically formed by this, uh, uh, thing in our past. And we can take the good things about that and, and hold on to them, but then we also don't have to agonize about, Mormonism in general, or, or, you know, we, we don't have to feel like it's something that's still looming over us or haunting us. So even, even talking to you about it, I mean, I feel like almost like I'm talking to, talking about someone else because it just, it feels so in the past for me. Well, do you know William Shun? He's a ex Mormon science fiction author. I do. Uh, I'm trying to think of how I know him, but we've met at least at one point. Yeah. Yeah, he's an, um, old, he's an yep. old friend of mine. We were in a writing group together in New York, and he has a uh, a memoir called The Accidental Terrorist about his very dramatic uh, departure. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'll I'll take a look at that. Um, I think we've been in touch. I mean, there's there's a small community of of former Mormons that um, are are writers, and I think they all kind of are are aware of one another. So um, there's this quote on the book from George Saunders. Uh, he says, there is not a more intense, prolific, or apocalyptic writer of fiction in America than Brian Evanson. And I was just curious, do you think of yourself as a prolific author? Because I would say that your number <laughs> of books is not, um, you know, unreasonably large. No, um, I don't think of myself as super prolific, but I, I think that... Um... Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm not even publishing a book a year, and a lot of genre people do a book a year or more. Um, so, but George, I think George just felt like for a literary author, I was publishing. <laughs> yeah, sort of grading on <laughs> so a curve it, there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and and George, he he goes, you know, often five or six years between books, so it's it's a, a different sort of thing for him. Well, it's funny because you know, reading your fiction, I would have said that you were a. Uh a real perfectionist and some of these stories like room tone and line of sight deal mm -hmm. with this issue of just, you know, artists right. going completely crazy trying to make every little thing perfect in their work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am a real perfectionist, um, but I just think I'm quicker about it than George is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, cause I really do spend a lot of time looking at sentences and revising them and, and being careful with them. And, and yeah, I, I mean, something like room, room tone. I was just, I just did a reading last night and read that aloud for the first time. Um, that really is, is close enough to my artistic, um, you know, practice that it's a little scary. It's probably good that I'm not doing film. Um, just because I really do spend a lot of times just looking at, at the little details and try to get, trying to get them exactly right. I was wondering actually if you had any sort of background in film or else how do you know about room tone and line of sight and that sort of stuff? Um, I, I have done a little bit of work in film. I've had, I've had, uh, you know, former students and friends who've had some involvement in film and we've talked a lot about it. Um, the line of sight story is, I think it's dedicated to Ian, who's a guy named Ian McDonald, who's, who's 
um, uh, a film, young filmmaker who's done a few things. And uh, um, he told me, you know, stories about uh, doing a shoot with someone and where things were just not quite right with the line of sight. And that really is the thing that started um, the process for me of, of that story. And then Room Tone, um, I don't know where that came from. It's, it's the same thing where it was just someone talked about the importance of Room Tone and how it's just so particular. And, 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 and that is something that has always kind of stayed with me. Um, and, but I also, you know, I, I sold a, a script at one point a few years ago to Blumhouse and, uh, I've, I've done story work on various other things, done a lot of pitches and things. So I have some kind of marginal involvement in, in the movie industry, um, you know, especially since I've come to Hollywood, it's almost impossible not to. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like a lot of your stories, I just imagine you kind of going about your day and something occurs to you and you, <laughs> and you think, well, what if someone were to become completely obsessed to the point of, you know, complete mental breakdown with, with whatever this is? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's that's kind of how my thought process works is seeing something that, you know, I'll, that most people would dismiss or not think about or you think about for a second and let go. And, and I kind of take it to an obsessive conclusion and just think about, all right, what happens if the long, wrong person starts thinking about this in a way that, that begins to churn inside of them? I mean, is that does that reflect something of yourself or is that pure artistic license, that obsessiveness? Um, you know, I'd like to say it was pure artistic <laughs> license, but I think it probably does reflect something in myself. I think I, you know, I have an obsessive side, but I've been lucky enough to be able to channel that kind of almost entirely into writing. And, and in fact, I think that there's something about writing that, that, um, that allows me to, you know, contain that in, in a way. And I find actually if I, if I go for three or four days without writing, um, then I start to get very anxious. And, and so there is something about that act of writing that that does something for me mentally or fulfills me in some way mentally and allows me to kind of um keep that obsessiveness um within a fictional world instead of letting it get out uh into the real world yeah well so you mentioned that you've come out to la um yeah you're now yeah. at cal arts after being at brown university for many years like what was that right. um how did that move come about um you know i at the time, uh, Maggie Nelson was teaching out at, at CalArts, a really interesting uh, poet and nonfiction writer. And she wrote to me and asked me if I would apply for this job. And, and uh, I thought, oh, you know, I'm pretty happy at Brown. I don't know. Um, but wrote and applied, came out and visited and, and realized that one of the great things about CalArts and probably about most art schools is that, you know, you, you, I, I'd be working with, with just all with students who were kind of, very engaged in a particular form of art. And, um, I found it incredibly inspiring to be just because I see, you know, what's going on in experimental an animation, what's going on in visual art, what's going on in dance. And all those things kind of end up being part of our discussions in the classroom. And I, I feel like it's, it's really helped me as a writer in terms of kind of expanding how I think about art and how art works. It says in your bio that you're involved with the aesthetics and politics master's program. Yeah, I, I do some involvement with that too. Uh, so I, where I'm in a department called critical studies and I'm mainly involved in the creative writing MFA, but I've done some teaching in aesthetics and politics too. And, and that's, you know, it's my, my training is, is theoretical. I did a PhD in critical theory and English literature. And, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of dealing with, 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 um, you know, theoretical texts and thinking about, um, you know, uh, the way in which they, they work with aesthetics, that, that, that sort of thing. Are you involved with teaching any sort of politics or are you more an aesthetics guy? I'm more of an aesthetics guy. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested in political theory to some degree, but I, I, I don't feel I'm as versed in it as some of my colleagues. I mean, I think it comes up naturally in certain ways, but, but yeah, more aesthetics than politics. I mean, like one of the stories in this book is called Trigger Warnings and yeah. Trigger Warnings are sort of a political football kind of thing. Like, could you talk about why, um, sort of what was the origin or the inspiration for that story? Um, so that story was, um, yeah, I, I wrote that story when, when people were uh, first starting to talk about trigger warnings and, um, you know, when actually after my first encounter with a student who very well-meaning student who really was very insistent on, on how, um, he, we all should do trigger warnings. And I was teaching at Brown at the time and, and, uh, 
you know, we, we kind of felt like at Brown that, that if you're taking a creative writing class, then, then you kind of have, that's your trigger warning. You're taking a creative writing class and things can be talked about and things can happen. And, and that if you start giving these trigger warnings at the start of a piece, it really changes the way in which you take the piece in. You start paying attention to things differently. You start, you know, a, a, you know, reading the piece to see the trigger warning or, or braced against it. And, and that maybe it, it does as much to kind of cover up, um, you know, a problem that kind of needs to be addressed, uh, and talked about with a professional, um, to have these trigger warnings as it does to resolve anything. And, and so, uh, that kind of started with that. Um, and the idea was, you know, there's this character in there who's not, not me. Um, but who it's, I, I kind of saw it as, as, as something a student might do. And, and some of those things are that are mentioned in there are things that have come up in some of my classes. Um, and then, but ultimately, I mean, it's, you know, it's a question of fiction. And then the reason it's in this book is I felt like there was just, a lot of the stories are really fairly dark and fairly heavy. And this was a moment of kind of just, you know, something different and something of, of a relief. I mean, if, if you have a conversation like that with a student where you say like, well, this is our um, attitude toward trigger warnings that we feel like creative writing classes shouldn't have trigger warnings that, you know, yeah. you should be challenged and unsettled by art and all this right. kind of stuff. How, how do those, yeah. do those, does that go over well or, like people... uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not always. Um, I mean, I, I have had, you know, at, at Brown, this one student um, has said, um, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And, you know, it's I don't think it's necessarily a question of right or wrong. But 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 yeah, I mean, I and initially I thought we just don't give trigger warnings. And then and then um, one of my colleagues here at CalArts says, you know, I just say at the beginning of the class that you may have to deal with stuff that's uncomfortable and, and just that's what you need to know going in. And, and that's the one trigger warning you're going to get. And that seems to me like it's, you know, okay and ethical, but it is like, I mean, art should be challenging. I mean, it's part of what art is. And, and, uh, I understand that, you know, people have had, um, awful things happen to them in some cases. Um, uh, and, and it is difficult, but I, I also think that telling them, um, giving them a caution at the start of the story that this is going to happen often just fills them with dread and just makes them think I'm not going to read that. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, the other thing I say to students, it's like, if you, if you reach a point where you can't go on with the story, then just stop reading it. You know, one of the great things about stories is you can put them down, you know, <laughs> no one's forcing you to read them. So I, I don't know. It's a complicated issue, and I think there's a lot of different um, sides. But I, I don't think I, I'm personally I don't think trigger warnings do what people think they do, and I don't think they're necessarily all that useful. So that student all those years ago at BYU who was complaining about your book being too violent, do you see that as sort of a, a proto phenomenon of the trigger warnings kind of culture, or do you see that as a completely separate sort of? Uh, you know, I, I do because she, she said, I, I think that her response to the book was, was partly based on things that, uh, were, were tied to her own life. And, you know, she said things like in the letter, like, uh, you know, it made me feel like I'd eaten something poisonous and, you know, how could this person do this to me and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's a cruder version of the, of, of that, but I, I do think, um, you know, it was partly that, you know, what, Basically, what what she wanted was, um, you know, to be told that she would not have to read anything appropriate, inappropriate, or anything she didn't want to. And the the irony of that, of course, is that she wasn't reading that book for a class. Um, she was just reading it. And um, you know, at a certain point, you you make a decision to either keep reading or stop reading something. And the thing that makes it so tricky is, it's like when I look back at my development as a, a young writer. Um, the, the work that's had the profoundest, most profound effect on me is work that initially I was kind of stunned or shocked by, or that did things that I didn't know you could do. And so, so in a way, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like for my artistic development, that, that process of, of reading challenging work and, and figuring out ways through it, um, it was really useful and really helpful. I mean, you know, my, my girlfriend is, uh, is a TA right now. She's doing an MFA uh -huh. in creative writing. And, and I just sort of know through that, that it's hard enough to get students to do the reading that they are assigned, let alone 
them read yeah. they aren't a science. And do you think that this that she went out of her way to read this book because she thought she might be offended by it and wanted to um, yeah. draw attention to that? I think that's probably what she was doing. But you know, I I don't know. I I, I can't exactly see into her head. But but from from the letter and the way the letter was expressed, I do get a sense that that's um, you know part of what she was doing. And it's partly, I mean, I, that that kind of forced indignancy is is something that I, that I find problematic. Um, but I also like I've been, except for that one incident, I, I I feel like I've been lucky to have readers who are willing to to kind of take some chances with my work and who who have been very generous. Yeah. All right. So on a lighter note, I, I wanted to ask you about this. So in an interview, you said that you are able to write anywhere, including you said mm-hmm. in the bathroom of an airplane. And I'm just wondering yeah. why the bathroom and not just in your seat. Uh, be, because um, uh, at the time I was on a flight um, with uh, my wife and my very young son. And um, it was just like he was crawling all over at both of us. And it was just like impossible to get anything done. And so so and I was only in the, you know, it, I, it sounds a little bit like I was terrible and just, you know, would spend two hours in the bathroom on the airplane <laughs> while my wife dealt with our son. But, but, you know, I just, I, I had an idea and I couldn't really manage to, to, to write it or record it there. Cause he kept on, you know, crawling over me and grabbing my family and things. So, so, uh, I just went in the bathroom and, and kind of, you know, spent five or 10 minutes kind of s- scratching things down. So it was just an ordinary bathroom length visit to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't seem abnormal or creepy or anything, I hope. <laughs> well, cause yeah, always, but it's also like, yeah. <laughs> well, you always just hear about all the turbulence and stuff. I would be afraid to spend too much time out of my seat. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I wanted to spend all that much time there. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 uh, and I, you know, I don't think I wrote a whole piece, but I wrote probably a page, page and a half of something and, and was able with that to kind of pick it up later and, and go. And the, the, the thing I have done for years is I just feel like, um, it's so easy to, 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 to make writing seem too precious. Like if you have a really special pen or you're using really nice paper or you're, you're, you feel like you have to have your cup of coffee next to you and be sitting and at exactly this table and the sun is coming through the window in this particular way. And, and that's great in some ways, but it's also like, um, I've kind of just done the opposite. I only, I write by hand. I use hotel pens. I use scratch paper that I kind of put on a clipboard. Um, I type it in afterwards, um, and then print it out and revise it by hand. And, and I think that kind of makes it feel more like play to me. I don't think it, you know, it, it is a serious activity, but I want to feel like I'm having fun with it. And it's like, if I have a really expensive pen, um, suddenly it's just like too serious for me. Yeah. Well, so one other thing I wanted that probably this is the last thing I'll, I'll have time to ask you about. But so um, you said in one of these uh, interviews I watched that because BYU kind of put you in the in this position of having to choose basically your religion or your writing, that uh-huh. the writing kind of almost became your religion. Could you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it was largely just because I was given that choice. It was like I really felt like I had to choose between you know, being Mormon or being at BYU and, and, and writing. Um, and, and so as a result, I mean, I just, I feel like, um, I chose the thing that I felt was, was more nourishing for me and also the thing that I was more committed to. And, and in that sense, I mean, it does feel like uh, a kind of substitute or stand in for religion, uh, just in the sense that it's like, it's something that I'm very engaged in. It's something I believe really strongly in. Um, it's something that, you know, um, uh, kind of, uh, really, I feel is a reflection of me and, uh, uh, yeah, I guess, but it's not that I, I worship. My, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, I, I, I have the same thought a lot that I talk about on this show, but I mean, do you feel like large numbers of people could abandon their religion and take up writing instead, or only a sort of small percentage of people would that work for or would that sort of satisfy that uh, for them? I don't know. I mean that's that's a really good question. I mean I think I think for some people it would, but I, I think for everyone there's you know, there's some activity that would. And, you know, whether it's writing or art or, you know, these these things that that really um you know complete us in some way. I mean I I do think of, you know, I I think of of, of art as just a really important thing for 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 us as humans and 
And I feel that a lot of the problems that we have these days have to do with kind of moving away from that a little bit, you know, that, that, that there is a kind of, um, lack of empathy that comes from not kind of engaging with, with, with writing and with art and other things. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any, uh, any just final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Uh, uh, no, I, so I, the, the latest book is Song for the Unraveling of the World that came out in July. I'm working on a new book, but it's probably a ways before it's done. And, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, absolute pleasure talking to you as well. We've been speaking with Brian Evanson about his new book, Song for the Unraveling of the World. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Brian Evanson for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.